Chapter 9 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anonymous A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 9 the mechanism of psychophysical activity. Une sensation van faire tel ou tel idée, donc nous avons ces idées aussitôt que nous avons cette sensation. Voilà une conclusion que le mouveau métaphysiciens ne manque jamais de trier. Condiac, Traite de Sensation, Book 1, Chapter 2, Section 8. When Hume described the constituent elements of experience as impressions and ideas, and when Kant described the fundamental matter distinct from the form of experience as the manifold of sense, they referred not to what we call perceptions, but to something simpler and more elementary, to what we call sensations. The pure empiricist, that is, one who acknowledges experience as the only criterion of reality, seems to find in sensations not only something indisputable, simple, and elementary, but also something which, in a singularly precise way, corresponds to the function of the constituent elements of the neural structures of the body. In fact, when we begin our study of the mind by making an inventory and descriptive classification of the sensations, we seem to be following a natural course, directly suggested and borne out by the science of the structure and function of the nervous system. Up to a certain point, everything has seemed to confirm this view. It has always been recognized, and the recognition is the starting point of a science of psychology, that sensation is sui generis. It is impossible to identify it with physical structure, with vibration, material or ethereal, or with any kind of mechanical action. Yet there has seemed to be, in fact, a relation between the two not only in their simple origin, but at every stage of their growing complexity. This parallelism of psychical and physical has frequently been taken as primary fact and as affording evidence of an undiscovered, if not an undiscoverable, identity. The parallelism takes the form of the simple affirmation that as invariable fact, whenever there is a psychical event, let us say a sensation, there is always concomitant with it a physical event, the stimulation of a neural structure. The relation between the two events is not causal in the meaning of physical science, for there is no common measure. Parallelism as a theory led directly to the concept of the epiphenomenon. This concept was formed in order to give expression to the fact that the parallelism is one-sided, heavily weighted, as it were, on the side of the physical, for the psychical is not concomitant with the whole of the neurological, much less with the whole of the physical. Sensation came to be regarded, therefore, as an epiphenomenon, a concomitant of certain special neural conditions on which conditions, however, it did not react. Sensation in this view is conditioned by neural structure, and it is always the conditioning, never vice versa. This long accepted and comparatively simple idea of the relation of sensation to nerve structure has been completely upset by the recent great expansion of the science of neurology. Recent research, so far as it throws light on the fact of sensation, proves that sensation is not simple and ultimate, or, in any definitely technical meaning, specific, that it rarely, if ever, enters into conscious experience as a specific response to a definite stimulus, that its simple character does not depend on the elements we are able to dissociate, and that the quality of sensation taken as a response to a definite stimulus is neither in intensity nor in extensity graduated by the stimulus. Let us first, however, examine a little more closely the old concept of the simplicity and elementary character of sensation in order to see why it has needed reform. Psychical life is a duration, but it seems constituted of a succession of sense impressions. These are not easy to isolate, but the difficulty is not that of distinguishing them, 
it is rather the practical difficulty of experiencing them separately in the first place they are so rapid in their succession as to appear continuous and in the second place the sensations of the different senses are simultaneous so that any moment of experience a vast number of interconnected sensations of different quality are mingled together each sensation seems however to have its occasion in a sense impression and each sense impression its occasion in the physical stimulus of a sense organ and although the mechanism enabling these impressions to be associated together and to give rise to the perceptions or conceptions which constitute knowledge is extremely complex the inference seems plain that reduced to its utmost simplicity the fundamental scheme of knowledge is that physical activities stimulate sensitive surfaces and are translated into psychical qualities out of which our perception of external reality is constructed this external reality may be a fiction or construction of the mind it may be no more than a sensation plus a possibility of sensations but it is always conceived as more than the actual sensation the idea of the possibility of a passage from sensation to knowledge depends on the implication that there is a constant relation between stimulus and sensation it is not necessarily causal but the psychical quality must be thought of as in some correlation with the physical reality all the older psychology was built on this presupposition and one of the most important movements in the history of philosophy is the attempt to show that knowledge of every kind is an association of simple sensations idealists and realists alike have been in agreement in accepting as a fundamental fact that sensation taken in its simplicity and apart from any causal inference is ultimate their controversy arose over the causal inference the realists insisting that the actual physical objects were revealed by sensations these being the psychical equivalent of sensible qualities in the objects the idealists who followed berkeley declaring the sensations themselves the objects of perception denying any ground of inference to an independent reality and accounting for objectivity by a theory of ideal substance the skeptics following hume denied the possibility of validifying any inference whatever substantial or causal throughout the whole of this controversy the unassailability of the sensation as the ultimate constituent of experience was accepted almost as an axiom it not only was never called in question but it appeared unquestionable and the whole controversy was as to the sufficiency or insufficiency of sensations of themselves to constitute experience the main difficulty was to account for the idea of necessary connection which seemed as fundamental an experience as the constituents themselves for even the skeptic must produce a theory of the appearance of necessity in justification of his denial of the fact nineteenth-century idealism was not based on denial of the fundamental reality of sensation but on the affirmation that the relations or connections of sensations are of equal objectivity and as constitutive of experience as the sensations themselves this principle first found full expression in the concept of the a priori synthesis the later controversy has been between those who have held that relations are as foundational and as constitutive of experience as the matter of sense and those who have held that relations however necessary to and presupposed in experience are purely external and do not affect the independent existence of the sensible matter the most definite recognition of the objectivity of sensations of the full scientific meaning is the well-known sensations theorique of the physicist ernest mach eighteen thirty four to nineteen sixteen sensations being the ultimate constituents of experience are in his view the basis on which physical science itself must rest everything physical in so far as it is knowable is translatable into terms of sensation inasmuch however as sensations are purely psychical and inasmuch as the psychical does not enter into the system of direct causal action and compensated reaction of physics he was obliged to adopt the theory of parallelism by adopting the hypothesis of parallelism sensations became amenable to scientific treatment for although they cannot themselves be directly measured 
they are now correlated with a physical series which can be. Sensations can indeed be classified and their laws determined. Also, they are representable in idea and the subject matter of intercourse between mind and mind. Yet they are a peculiar class of phenomena inasmuch as they are themselves immediate experience and also the type or, or form to which all knowledge is reducible. They cannot be brought within the physical system because their relation to physical reality is not causal or consequential in the scientific meaning of an equivalence of action and reaction. They are, in fact, a parallel series. They are not an aspect of the physical nor in any way identical with the physical, but ideal existences. They constitute the mind as an ability to know and are the form to which all knowledge is reduced. As a matter of fact, however, there are three series, viz. 1. The physical actions and reactions, 2. The physiological responses, and 3. The psychical responses or sensations. The first and second belong to the physical system, the third does not. The science of sensations in this view is therefore not psychology in the ordinary acceptance of the term, that is to say, it is neither introspective nor subjective. It treats sensations as equally objective with the facts of physical science, and its main interest is to determine the laws by which they have come to reveal to the mind the physical universe. An interesting illustration of Mach's problem and method is given in the careful drawing he made, reproduced in the Sensations Theory, of the actual visual imagery accompanying his conscious perception when lying in bed. He drew accurately the perspective of the objects and the actual proportion of everything which came within his field of vision. The extraordinary disproportion between the actual sense impressions on the retina and his perceptions, also the distortion in perspective, which to all appearance must be automatically corrected, is strikingly demonstrated. The whole scheme of a science of sensations is based on the assumption that the conditions of a sensation are invariable. The quality of the sensation is not deducible from its conditions, but the existence of the sensation is invariably accompanied by a physical change in material structures. For example, let the sensation be a vivid patch of red. I may attribute it to a direct image of a visible object, or to an after image when my eyes are closed and there is therefore no object but in each case the sensation is concomitant with a specific change in certain nerve structures. The sensation and the change in nerve tissue are the two parallel existences, and each seems reducible to an original elementary simplicity, and each concomitantly develops an ever-growing complexity. Simple strains in a structureless ether develop the complexity of mind. Such, in brief, is Mach's theory. The scheme is scientific both in its conception and in its method, and the criticism of philosophy upon it is that, however useful it may prove in practice, it can never give what it is intended to give and what it professes to give. A theory of knowledge and existence, a scientific philosophy. It cannot do so because the simplicity which is its goal is only reached by abstraction and that is by subtracting more and ever more from the richness and diversity of experience. The fascination of the idea that the simple elements we obtain by elaborate and arbitrary methods of abstraction are more real, more abiding, and more original than the living whole from which we have abstracted them is irresistible, however irrational. It seems, for example, almost absurd to question the fact that the earliest forms of life on our planet were of extreme simplicity and that the more complex forms have evolved from them. Yet the evidence for it, so far as actual fact is concerned, is purely negative, the absence of fossil remains, and the theoretical problem is more and not less complicated by the hypothesis. Yet the opposite assumption even shocks us by its unscientific character. It is not evidence, therefore, in the empirical meaning, but a reasoning which seems inherent in our nature that is at the root of our conviction. 
we have but to recollect the astonishment caused in our own generation by the discovery of the evidence of a prehistoric yet essentially modern civilization in crete and even more amazing the increasing evidence that neolithic man possessed the arts of agriculture and engaged in oversea trade it is precisely the same inherent reasoning which makes us think that the infant mind must consist of extremely simple associations and that the adult mind is gradually built up out of infantile trials and errors in the case of the simplicity of sensations and their parallelism with the corresponding simplicity of physiological reaction however it is not by general philosophical criticism of general scientific method that it stands condemned the theory fails to accord with fact in the ordinary sense in which appeal to fact is made the description which the theory of parallelism presupposes proves false it is proved false by the discovery of the function of the cerebral cortex in sensation let us first however examine more closely the theory of parallelism itself the sensation and the physiological condition concomitant with it are conceived by the theory of parallelism as each in itself ultimately of extreme simplicity each is the constituent element of a series of events the two series are unalterable in their special nature and therefore not interchangeable but each series within its own procession is able to give rise to endless variety diversity and complexity by addition coalescence commingling and such like mechanical relations an analysis of experience is supposed to end in a quality which has to be accepted as simple existence the sensation it is accompanied by definite quantitative change in a special physiological structure the original idea of a parallelism was metaphysical it was first definitely formulated by leibniz as a hypothesis to explain the relation of the mind to the body he suggested that the mind and body might be related to one another as two entirely independent but perfectly regulated clocks the workmanship of a divine artificer each would depend on its own principle and be independent of the other but each at every moment would exactly accord with the other modern psychologists faced with the difficulty of bringing the science of mind with the energetical system of physical science availed themselves of this idea it seemed at least to be innocent and non-committal its acceptance might be half-hearted and unsatisfactory but as a provisional hypothesis it at least appeared to offer a principle by which the new science of mind could get to work for anything to be scientifically treated the first condition is that it be measurable and the hypothesis seemed to offer a very effective substitute for direct measurement it appeared moreover to be justified by the pragmatic test of success in working and psychological research generally tended more and more to confirm it a great advance was made when johannes muller eighteen o one to eighteen fifty eight formulated the theory of specific energy of the nerves and when later weber seventeen ninety five to eighteen seventy eight and following him fechner eighteen o one to eighteen eighty seven announced the discovery of a definite psychophysical law it seemed that the foundation of a descriptive science of mind on the basis of complete parallelism was assured even when the promise of progress along the line was disappointed the basis of parallelism seemed to be continually confirmed by new discovery following the formulation of specific energy came the analysis of skin sensations to the four completely distinct classes of heat cold touch and pain each class served by specific nerves and distinguishable by the sensitive spots it was found possible by careful survey to map out the exact distribution of these spots on the whole surface of the body and it seemed to indicate that we had found the ultimate elements of neurological discrimination on the one hand and qualitative psychical response on the other side by side with this advance in the discrimination of nerve endings has gone an increasing discovery of the localization of function in the central nerve masses of the brain and spinal cord first the parts of the cortex which are concerned with the sensations of the special senses vision hearing taste and smell were localized 
Then it was found possible to map out a motor area and detect the exact spots at which the control of the voluntary muscles which move the limbs and those which bring about the complicated movements of articulate speech are situated. Everything seemed to tend to the conclusion that on each side, the physiological and the psychological, there is ultimate elementary simplicity and that the complexity of the concrete mind-body is purely mechanical. The fact that the two orders, psychical and physical, could not be reduced to one seemed to be adequately met, or at least its disconcerting obstinacy to be overcome, by the hypothesis of parallelism. It was indeed surprisingly simple. An organ like the great brain or cerebral cortex, containing thousands of millions of individual cells, each with a specific function, could not be easy to lay bare in its working or to follow in the intricacy of its paths. But at least it seemed clear that its work could be no other than that of associating the sensations and so providing the condition of judgment and general mental process. Recent discoveries have completely disappointed this promise and altered the whole aspect of the problem. They begin with the discovery by Dr. Head, in a famous experiment already referred to, that there are two systems of sensitivity, completely distinguishable from one another, named by him the epicritic and the protopathic. The discovery, interesting enough in itself, might yet have remained a mere detail of physiological and psychological analysis, had not its discoverer at once grasped its significance and followed it as a clue to guide him in his further researches, more especially with regard to the function of the cerebral cortex. Let me first, however, try to indicate without entering into an anatomical and physiological details the significance of the discovery for theory of knowledge. I will take an illustration. The fingertips are extremely sensitive and highly discriminative. The slightest contact with an object is enough to obtain a psychical response conveying the most delicate distinctions in the physical stimuli of temperature, surface quality, pressure, weight, etc., and also a high degree of sensitiveness to pain. When I shake hands with a friend, my fingers not only discriminate temperature, surface, pressure, etc., of the physical object, but enable me to respond in thought and feeling to all the modifications introduced by my friend into his handshake. In fact, my handshake may become a language. In all this, I have an experience which, however hopelessly complicated the task may appear, offers no theoretical difficulty to an ultimate resolution on analysis into simple elementary sensations responding to simple elementary stimuli. But now suppose the hand I touch is that of the lady with whom I am in love. Will any analysis into epicritical sensations of pain, touch, heat, and cold describe, much less exhaust, the response? I am not thinking of any emotions which may have other occasions, but purely and simply of the response to the hand touch. There is a difference of kind and not of degree in the sensation itself. The lady's hand is not softer or warmer or more delicate to my touch, judged by any physical criterion, nor need I suppose any intention to impart language on her part nor yet is the quality of the sensation due to judgment being warped by imagination or emotion, it is a protopathic response. The significant thing, however, and that to which I now wish to direct special attention, is that this difference cannot be accounted for by saying that in one case the sensation evokes emotions, in the other not. It may be true as a first description. It is useless as an explanation for it explains nothing. No analysis of pure sensations as simple accompaniment of physiological reactions to physical stimuli will discover the difference which makes some evoke specific emotions, some not. The emotions, in fact, are not conditioned by the senses. They are indifferent to them. They are conditioned by aesthetic imagery. Clearly something must intervene between pure sensation and emotion, and it must be psychical. It intervenes not only between sensation and emotion, but also between sensation and responsive muscular action, an image is created. This essential, pivotal fact in the working of the psychophysical mechanism is purely mental, 
however it purport to represent nature and matter. It is the ascetic activity, and if we must assign an instrument in the organism, we must locate it in the cerebral cortex, for when that is injured, the functioning of the image-producing activity is impaired, but it cannot be identical with the pure receptivity of the mind in regard to sensations. It is necessary to suppose this function, and when we consider what it implies, we see that it must be wholly distinct from the sensory function itself. It cannot, that is to say, be only integration to however high a degree of perfection such integration be carried, by means of simple association or any other mechanical mental process. It cannot be so, because knowledge is not an association of sensations, but an interpretation of them. Were we able to study exhaustively the sensitive spots and to manipulate them in endless varieties of combination, playing on them as we strike chords on the keyboard of a pianoforte, we could not thereby constitute knowledge. Not because there is no common factor between psychical quality and physical quantity, but because knowledge is interpretation. It supposes a factor which fits the sensation into an imaginative system. If the cerebral cortex be, as there is every reason to believe it is, the organ of intellect in its highest specialization and the means by which logical processes of thought are carried out, this is the function par excellence we must assign to its response to sensation. Aesthetic activity conditions logical activity. Concepts depend on images. Anatomical and physiological research has come to confirm this view. If the cerebral cortex generated the mind by exercising the passive, mechanical, responsive, associative, and integrative functions which used to be assigned to it, we should expect that lesions of the cortex would be accompanied by definite quantitative effects on the sensitive spots. We should expect that according to the extent and affected area of the injury or destruction of tissue of the cortex, there would be interruption in the functioning of such of the sensitive spots as were in direct communication with it. For every sensitive spot is in communication with the cortex, and on that communication we suppose its particular psychical effect in consciousness to depend as well as its association and integration. It would be natural to suppose, therefore, that a definite diminution of sensation would follow injury or destruction of the cortex, corresponding to the extent of the injury, and due to throwing out of action a definite number or particular class, or a special area of sensitive spots. Nothing remotely approaching such a condition is found to take place. When the injury is confined to the cerebral cortex and other part of the nervous system are unimpaired, what we have is not loss of sensation, but disturbance of the normal interpretation. First of all, the power of accurate localization is lost, then the power to judge intervals of time, and then the power to estimate comparative weights and identify similar stimuli. But what is more curious and instructive still is that older, it may be pre-human, instinctive reactions and reflexes come into play. This cannot but suggest that the means by which these older systems have been superseded is a power which has been able to hold them repressed or inhibited without being destroyed, for they begin to function again when the control is weakened or the inhibition removed. See Henry Head, Sensation and the Cerebral Cortex, Brain, Volume 49, Part 2, 1918. The physiological and biological problem is to determine the function of the cerebral cortex. The psychological problem is to discover the psychical import of that function and its place in the mental life. It is on the relatedness of these problems I desire to concentrate attention. The physiologists have demonstrated that the sensitiveness of the organism in whole or in part is unaffected by injuries to the cerebral cortex, and further that the specific psychical apport of the separate sensitive spots is unaffected by the activity which the cerebral cortex exercises in response to it. It seems to me that this is precisely what a study of the mental life itself should lead us to expect. The basis of knowledge, its primary and essential condition, that on which all intellectual process depends, is imagery. Images are not sensations nor composed of sensations, though sensations are the occasion of their production. 
We have only to consider the two activities, perception and memory, to see how wholly dependent our mental life is on imagery. The mental life consists in perception and memory, and these active processes are concerned only with images. Thus, the pinprick gives me a sensation of pain which I feel. What I perceive is not the pain I feel, but the pinprick, and that is the sense image. What I remember is the pinprick, and that is the memory image. If I seem to remember the pain, it is not really the pain I felt which is reproduced, but an image, otherwise the memory would itself be sensation. Sensations are not images, nor are they in any intelligible meaning constituents or elements or components of images. Even if we adopt the standpoint of the associationist and resolve the image, in this case the pinprick, to an association of sensations, visual, tactile, and painful, even then over and above the sensations, simultaneous or successive, and their association, we have to postulate an activity which selects them and which, when it has selected them, fashions them into a permanent shape which makes it possible to present them, then and thenceforward, as one and identical. It is impossible to reject the fact that in some form image creation is the basis of intellectual life. The image, not the sensation, is the pivotal fact on which the whole structure of intellectual knowledge rests. In this highly significant fact, we may find the clue to the unraveling of some of the most perplexing riddles of our emotional and intellectual nature. Every human being is, I suppose to some degree, doubtless there is difference in the degree, at times the unwilling prey of sensuous imagery, and it gives rise to mental conflict. It seems to us, at such times, that we are slaves to ruthless impulsive emotions which compel the indulgence of imagery, even though at the same time we are fully conscious of the loathing with which it fills us. Literature teems with examples of what it is difficult to express adequately in technical scientific terms. Often enough, it is the tragedy of saintly lives. One of the finest artistic expressions of it is Robert Louis Stevenson's strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It is the burden of a great part of the writings of St. Paul, and it looms largely in the graphic description of the spiritual conflict which issues in that heart cry, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The psychical fact which appears to me to lie at the basis of this mental conflict is the dependence of our emotions on imagery for their expression. It is true of all of our emotions, fear, anger, and the rest, and not only of the sexual emotions, although it is in sexual emotion that this dependence is most pronounced. Why should this give rise to conflict? Imagery is purely intellectual, by which I mean that the creating of images is a distinct mode of intellectual activity. The image is a product of intellectual activity. But the intellect is also on the motor side directly in control of the voluntary muscular system. It stands, therefore, eminently for what we call the will, meaning thereby not blind impulse, but the power to direct and control. Our emotions, on the other hand, belong to the affective side of our nature and control the glandular system. They bring about glandular activity and find their satisfaction in glandular discharge, but for the power to exercise this activity, they are absolutely dependent on imagery. Here then are the controlling forces, emotions compelling the intellect to find for them expression in imagery, the intellect unable to resist the compelling force of the emotion, yielding easily to the demand of the emotion for expression, but resisting the capture of the voluntary muscular system over which the emotion has no direct control. Let us look at it a little more closely and try to illustrate it from the facts of common experience. The point for which I am contending is the recognition of the image as distinct from the sensation. The image is the product of an aesthetic activity and not of a passive sensibility. In the first place, it is entirely in accord with the well-known theory of dream interpretation associated with the researches of Freud and Jung and their followers. According to this theory, the dream is caused by active wishes or impulses or cravings repressed in the unconscious mind, which avail themselves of the relaxation of censorship during sleep to emerge into consciousness. 
they can only express themselves by clothing themselves in imagery and for this purpose they avail themselves of the images which have formed some recent experience and are therefore ready to hand hence the phantasmagory distortion and contraction of the dream consciousness what is significant to me in this theory is the recognition that the only outlet of an impulse to expression is sensuous imagery the dream is a striking instance of it but it is just as true of waking experience if there are no images there is no perceptual world for images are not conglomerated sensations but sui generis products of an aesthetic activity especially instructive are dreams which are primarily caused by physical discomfort and which end in glandular or valvular discharge cases in which the impulse is not a repressed wish but an ordinarily controlled natural function here if anywhere we should expect that a impulse active during the unconsciousness of sleep would of itself bring about the required relieving action yet it seems unable to do this until it can draw the aesthetic faculty of the mind into activity consider now an ordinary emotion fear for example in its terrifying form it is a rare and occasional experience but in the milder form of anxiety it enters into the daily ordinary life of everyone differing greatly indeed according to temperament in its way it illustrates admirably the conflict though on a lower and unimportant plane anxiety has only one way of expressing itself and that is compelling the image forming activity we resist but we are helpless a child has not returned home at its wonted hour or a friend lies ill we may know perfectly well and may be able to think of numberless reasons which would account for the one or the other and we know that as a probability disaster as the cause of the child's absence or death as the end of the friend's illness is negligible yet if anxiety overcomes us we picture street accidents portray vividly all kinds of dangers or we think of death and follow the imagery to the funeral scenes and mourning we may be all the time conscious that our fears are idle and our forebodings foolish we may be vexed with ourselves and try to disperse the images it is useless we are helpless but no sooner is the anxiety relieved than all this imagery disappears into oblivion so complete is the oblivion that when as we must in the ordinary nature of chances happen to someone sometimes a real disaster is simultaneous with an anxiety and the image in which it had found expression it seems supernatural and an instance of a cult or at least abnormal mind activity these facts when we give full attention to them seem to make it clear not only that there is in us as part of our human nature a distinct aesthetic or image forming activity but that it is the fundamental activity the basis of perception and the condition of action this is not the ordinary view imagination or fancy is a mental power universally recognized but also universally rejected as having no claim to be constitutive of the real world of practical life it stands as the very name for unreality it seems to us to weave airy forms which dissolve and vanish at the touch of real life we know that the objects we perceive as well as the objects we imagine are images we can give no other meaning to our words the glorious crimson clouds in a sunset sky could not be presented to the mind as identical with the tiny globules of water which surround us as a gloomy chilly fog when we are within them had the mind no power to form images it is images we perceive interpret them how we will yet despite this fact we are firmly convinced that a sharp and absolute difference in kind separates into two classes the images we perceive and the images we fancy separates therefore the activity of perceiving from the activity of imagining it seems the height of paradox to declare that the things we perceive and the things we fancy alike receive their form and substance from one another from one and the same creative activity of the mind i want to show that when we start with the concept of reality as life and consciousness i want to show that when we start with the concept of reality as life and consciousness and not as something or other on which these somehow depend 
when we make the task of philosophy to follow the life of the mind in its development or unfolding and thus present it as history, then it is no longer a paradox, and the appearance of paradox is itself explained as an end at which the life activity has aimed and which it has achieved. There is, however, one condition to which any sound metaphysics must submit, feeling which it can never bring conviction to the human mind. It must respect the concept of the objectivity of the real. That is to say, philosophy begin by showing that the ordinary notion of what constitutes the objectivity of nature is irrational. It must replace the notion with one that is rational. We cannot reject the ordinary notion and propose to do without the absolute objectivity at all. Continually throughout the history of human thought, notions which have seemed fundamental, rooted in the nature of things, have been undermined and replaced with other notions, but they have always been replaced. The concept of physical reality has undergone continual change, but throughout all the revolutions in our ideas, objectivity in the absolute sense has not been in question. It is not by dialectical arguments like those of Zeno and Heraclitus that men have become convinced that the earth is not at rest, that the atmosphere has weight, that a mass is a function of velocity, that particles are charges of electricity. At every stage of the evolution of ideas, to be effective a new view has had to replace the old, and the new view has had to be more satisfactory in its objective aspect. Precisely the same is true with regard to the concept of perceptual reality. The belief of mankind that perceptual images are objectively real and fanciful images are subjectively real, that the one are caused by physical objects and the other by a riot of the faculty we call imagination, seems grounded in the nature of things and unquestionable. No dialectical exposition of the baselessness or even absurdity of this interpretation of experience will bring conviction which simply denies the objective distinction of the perceptual image or which places it objectively on the same plane as the fanciful image. Philosophy is in the first place the aesthetical problem. In what does the reality of the perceptual image, the unreality of the fanciful image, consist? And in the second place, the logical problem, in what does the objectivity of knowledge and truth, the subjectivity of opinion and error, consist? The second of these problems has been recognized as the peculiar province of philosophy from earliest times. The first has been much later in gaining recognition and is even yet hardly acknowledged. Yet the moment our reflection is directed on this aesthetic problem, it becomes clear that the failure of science to find any ground in experience for the fundamental distinction on which it rests, the aesthetic distinction of perceptual and fanciful images, is absolute. Consider the ultra-scientific theory of sensations to which I have referred. Let us challenge it, not generally, but on a particular point most favorable to it. There are three series of actual objective events, a series of physical events, a series of psychological events, and a series of psychical events. The theory is that the sensations or psychical series are invariably concomitant with it, the physiological series, but only when the physiological series is in direct and immediate relation to the physical series does the series of sensations become a series of perceptual images. How, then, are we able to explain the phenomenon of the after-image? I am lying in bed, and my eyes are directed to the pendant electric lamp. I switched off the light, and the room is completely dark. In a few moments, I have the vivid sensation of an intensely brilliant green glow passing on its sharply defined outline into orange-red, projected where I imagine wall or ceiling to be. After a few seconds, it passes, at first slowly, then with an increased acceleration to the right. Why do I say that the image of the electric lamp before I switch the light off is resolvable into three concomitant series and the after image into only two? By assuming the physical series in the one case and the absence in the other, I can offer myself some more or less plausible hypothesis, no doubt, but confining myself to the acknowledged data of the theory of sensations I have and can have no possible explanation. At any rate, if there be one, it is yet to be produced. 
It seems to me, then, that sensations, however fundamental, essential, and important, play a comparatively subordinate role in the mental life. No construction of them or development of them can constitute the concrete reality of life. The first expression of complete mind is the image, not the sensation, and the first self-sufficing form of activity is the imagination. When as yet there is no image, there is nothing. Abstract sensations cannot be welded together to form an image. Let me then outline the way in which the life of the mind appears to me to shape itself and to accord with the organization of the body for action. When we try to present the life of the mind in its full reality to the mind itself, we are met with a difficulty which is familiar enough in physical science and which science has had to find the means of surmounting. This difficulty is that only a fragment of our full life comes to expression in consciousness, and that knowledge in its positive meaning is confined to that fragment. If then we would have a complete knowledge of mind, we must transcend consciousness to the extent of forming a conception of unconscious mental existence. In physical science we have had the same difficulty. It appears not self-explanatory, and we have therefore to introduce the concept of energy, an energy latent when it is not kinetic. In precisely the same way we must introduce the concept of energy if we would comprehend the full life of mind. Here, however, there is an important, it seems to me all-important, difference. We are not without knowledge of mind energy. It is only the form of the knowledge which offers a difficulty. In regard to a psychical reality as compared with a physical reality, we are in a privileged position. We know our life in living it. We experience the inward force and push as well as the outward expression. In fact, had we not this intuition of mind energy, it is difficult to imagine we could ever have formed the concept of physical energy. Our difficulty in this case of mind is to find a concept which will express the existence of our activity before it finds expression. Mind is pure activity, and activity is only known in its expression. Inactivity is what it does, and what it does expresses what it is. We experience this activity in two forms, first as emotion, second as action. Both forms seek expression, depend in fact on expression, and find expression in the image. Until there is imagery, there is no mental expression of any kind. But while one form is definitely shaping itself in action, the other form is indirectly concerned with action. Herein it seems to me consists the difference between the perceptual and the fanciful image. While the one is only indirectly and remotely connected with action, the other is intimately concerned in, and called forth by, the forming action. And here physiology and biology come to our aid. Physiology shows that the cerebral cortex is mainly concerned in the shaping, controlling, and directing our voluntary actions, and to this purpose integrating a glandular system stimulated by a protopathic sensibility and a muscular system stimulated by an epicratic sensibility. Biology shows the antiquity of the protopathic system with its psychical accompaniment of emotion and instinctive action and the evolution of the epicritical system in the rise and development of the new brain with its psychical accompaniment of voluntary self-conscious action, culminating in the intellectual activity in man. However this may be, my main contention is that the nature of the activity which finds expression in emotion on the one hand and in purposive action on the other, we have the true distinction between the fanciful and the perceptual image. To sum up, then, the theory of sensation supposes that the mind consists of ultimate simple qualities forming a series of successive and simultaneous psychical existence. That this series is concomitant with a series of physiological changes in specific nerve structures that these physiological changes are primarily induced by the stimulus of movements, material or ethereal, in the physical universe. The sensations are held to be states of mind which are related together by laws of association analogous to the attractions and repulsions of physics. 
Criticism of this theory reveals its utter inadequacy to account for the primary fact of mental life, the image. Perception and memory, the distinctive activities of the mind, depend on imagery. There are two kinds of images, perceptual images which represent the objective reality of the world and fanciful images which represent the ideal independence of the mind of that objective reality. The difference between perceptual and fanciful images, according to the theory of sensations, is that the physiological series of neural changes which accompanies the sensations composing the images in one case is, in the other is not, concomitant with a series of external physical stimuli. The criticism of this theory shows that there is nothing in the sensation which reveals whether it is or is not concomitant with anything else. When we reject the view that mind is conditioned by an independent reality on which it depends, and conceive mind as itself the reality of an activity of which all existence is a mode, the concept of activity itself involves a twofold mode of existence, one latent and one potential, the other actual and expressed. Mind is an inward push expressing itself in outward action. The latent activity of the mind is called into expression by the sensitivity of the body. Bodily activity is glandular and muscular. Mental activity is either emotional and sensory or voluntary and motor. Both forms are dependent on imagery for expression. The images are distinguished by their function. Emotion is connected with a system of deep protopathic sensitivity and only indirectly concerned with action. Will is intellectual and directly concerned with action. Will is connected with a superficial, sharply differentiated, epicritical sensitivity. Its expression is called forth by the continually present need of shaping the progressing action, and this gives its objective character to the perceptual image. The role of sensation is to form a kind of sentry outpost system to the mind. Sensations have no apport. They evoke images, but the images are not the sensations plus associated reminiscences of sensations. An image is the work of the mind sui generis. This essential characteristic, manifestation of mind, is the aesthetic activity. The mind expresses its inner impulses and latent force by creating images. End of chapter 9 Recording by Anonymous